is it possible to directly link our conscious self with the higher worlds? Or is this just a rare gift bestowed upon a special class of individuals? Well, according to consciousness researcher and author Colleen Morrow, she says not at all. Colleen, who herself followed her higher guidance that led her to the founding of the popular Intuition magazine back in 1988, has since set out to make the connection between what the ancients have said for thousands of years and what new science is now quantifying as evidence of this higher realm and what they term non-local consciousness. I spoke with Colleen about how this subtle and yet powerful process is not only attainable by everyone, but why it is imperative that we now make that leap in linking ourselves with the higher worlds at this point in our evolution. I am so delighted and honored to have you on the show today. You know, I've been familiar with your great work for years. Uh, and just for, so our audience knows, Colleen founded the popular and widely read Intuition magazine back in the late 80s. And I'll bet many of our listeners are familiar with the magazine, but may not be familiar with Colleen's name as uh, she was the brains and inspiration behind this magazine. And she has an amazing story to tell about how this magazine came to fruition. And it involves, of course, intuition. So maybe we could start there, Colleen. Share with us, if you would, the synchronicity that happened to you back in the late 80s that led you to found Intuition Magazine. Well, thank you for having me. I was in San Francisco then, and I had worked for three, I think, uh, alternative magazines. And at that point, San Francisco was not a great place to pursue a career in magazine publishing. And I had been very lucky, and I was starting to think that my luck was running out. I was between jobs, and there was nothing really on the horizon. And I was frantically sending out resumes, worried that I was going to have to leave, which I didn't want to want to do. I love San Francisco. And I decided to take a day off from my job search, and I decided to go outside, work in the garden, just enjoy the sun and mm-hmm. have a quiet and relaxing day. And during that time, while I was out in the garden, I had an an intuitive experience, the kind of intuitive experience I haven't had before, where I felt like information simply just dropped into my brain. My way of accessing intuition uh, previously was always through the mental or emotional body. I just Mm -hmm. had a hunch or, you know, a a feeling about something. But this was um, a purely mental experience where the information literally just dropped into my brain, and it was about contacting somebody. And it didn't seem to make any sense because I knew what he was doing, he didn't have a magazine. He had a center about intuition. And I thought about it for a few days and then decided to contact him. I asked him to send me some information about uh, the center and what they were doing. And when I got this big package, I dumped it out on my dining room and discovered a um, typewritten journal called Applied Sci. And it was about intuition and creativity. And I sat there and I flipped through the pages and I suddenly had an idea that if this magazine was reformatted and renamed, it could be a real magazine, that it was really fascinating information that I thought a wider group of people would be interested in than just the center's uh, 200 members. And so I went over and talked to him and mentioned that, and he just lit up and said that it had always been his dream, Mm. that the right person had ever showed up. And so I went home, banged out a proposal, brought it back, and Intuition, a magazine for the higher potential of the mind, was born. And it was my baby from the start. He had a two-room office, so I set up shop on my in my dining room, and I begged my writer friends to contribute free articles and sold advertising to pay for the printing and then just trucked it around in my car to local bookstores. And when they all sold, I knew my hunch had been correct that mm-hmm. there was a much bigger audience for this stuff than just his tiny membership. And later I got a grant and 
set up an office, hired a staff. He eventually closed his center, but he signed the rights over to the magazine to me. So it just took off from there. And it was something that I couldn't have predicted. I've always, I had always wanted to start my own magazine, but it just didn't seem like the right time. I certainly didn't have the resources then. So it was nothing that I could have come to rationally. It was just that experience where I was told to contact a certain person, and it just sort of went from there. That is so just... I knew that it wasn't my it wasn't my thought. It really felt like a, a foreign object. It was just mm-hmm. a piece of information that appeared in my brain. Mm, that is amazing. I love hearing these stories because, again, you know, we are so used, uh, so habituated toward uh, listening to the rational mind, that left brain, uh, which operates sort of in a linear fashion. So when something like this happens, uh, sort of out of the blue, arbitrarily. We tend to question it most of the time, but it is it is the opposite of predictable. It that is the uh, the epitome of what intuition is. I think that's great. And by the way, for the audience, you know, as you, you were telling the story of how you were able to shop at the small bookstores. By the time I got to it, it was at large national bookstores like Barnes mm-hmm. and Noble. That's where I would run to to get my copies mm-hmm. of Intuition. So that's great. Well, you know, mm-hmm. Colleen. Speaking of synchronicity, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What in your mind in your left mind, <laughs> or maybe your right, right, right brain, I should say, is the difference between intuition and synchronicity. How would you explain these uh, two faculties work? Are they one and the same in your opinion? Um, well, I think they're related. Like, for example, I wouldn't have had the, the, um, the luck that I had if I hadn't paid attention. I mean, it was a synchronistic experience, mm-hmm. but because it didn't make any rational sense, I think a lot of people, and probably myself at another time, would have not paid attention to it. But the fact that I paid attention to these, this subtle experience, and even though it didn't make rational sense, I acted on it. And then everything flowed from there. Mm-hmm. Now, were you familiar with the organization that you ultimately reached out to at the time you got this sort of uh, download? Somewhat. Mm-hmm. I had met the founder, Bill Couts, one time. Mm-hmm. And I knew generally what they were doing. And it sure wasn't a magazine. And the only thing I could think of there was that there be, might be some sort of administrative position. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't make any rational sense at all. Mm-hmm. But it was listening to those subtle cues and acting on them. Wow. And I think we get them a lot, and we, we discount them because they don't really make rational sense. Yeah. Well, this is what your book is about. Uh, this, is, this is what your brand new book is about, Spiritual Telepathy. And I want to obviously spend uh, the bulk of our conversation talking about, uh, about your book. Uh, this is synchronicity and intuition and ancient wisdom and new science. You bring all of these together um, and you do it so beautifully, highlighting the perennial philosophies of our oldest traditions. And yet you bring it into the present, which is a very critical time, this present that we're in. This is one of challenge, a time of challenge, a time of opportunity like we've never seen before. Both are coexisting, in my opinion. And you reference at the beginning of your book how uh, these unprecedented challenges that we're going through may actually be a gift to accelerate our evolution as a species. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Okay. I, I'd like to define what spiritual, what I, what my definition yes. of spiritual telepathy is first. Mm-hmm. And it's why I let off with that um, story about the magazine, that spiritual telepathy is communication from the subtle worlds, from our own souls or from higher beings. And the communication that we have from those levels is always telepathic. We don't audibly hear the information. The information is just dropped into our brains, and it becomes part of our conscious awareness. And that was my experience. It wasn't my thought. And I stood there in the garden trying to 
trace it back thinking, well, why would I think that? And I realized I couldn't have thought that. It didn't make any rational sense. And it was, it was something that was just dropped into my brain. It was something that was just given to me. Mm-hmm. And um, this teaching comes from the Aegis Wisdom, as you've mentioned. It was once taught in ancient mystery schools in Egypt and Greece, Babylon and India. And the training was first put into book form by the Hindu sage Patanjali, who was the author of the Yoga Sutras. So this has been, this has been out for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that really propelled me into the subject was that I've always been very touched uh, when reading of um, stories about people that could communicate with the higher worlds. We have our stories of saints, but we know that they lived in monasteries and devoted their lives to spiritual practice. But it also seems to happen to ordinary people at times. Joan of Arc was just minding her own business, herding sheep, when she was contacted by the angels. Mm -hmm. Eileen Caddy received guidance that led to the founding of the Finhorn community in Scotland. And George Washington Carver, the botanist, Mm -hmm. used to walk in the morning, excuse me, walk in the woods each morning to talk to God. And apparently God talked back. He called it the divine radio. And it always stirred a real longing in me, and I've always wondered if it's... it's, um, only special people that this happens to. Are they more involved than, than I am, or is it somehow predestined? And what I discovered in immersing myself in this topic is that it's not just for the special people, that it's our evolutionary destiny. Mm-hmm. And that answers your question, that many spiritual leaders and philosophers and scientists are telling us that we're poised on the brink of an evolutionary leap. And it's one as profound as our emergence from animal to human. And when we make conscious contact with the soul, we take our first steps out of the strictly human world and into the superhuman worlds, and then the, the subtle worlds become part of our human world, and we move up a notch on the evolutionary ladder. And when this happens, everything changes. We lose our sense of separateness. We realize that we're part of a great universal life, the soul of humanity, and our, our consciousness completely shifts. And you can imagine how the world would change if we have a critical mass of people that have had that experience. Mm-hmm. Your personal ambition becomes a desire to work for the greater good, and you start to move from the personal to the universal, from me to we, as Barbara Mark Harbert says. And she also says that those of us on Earth today are the crossover generation, and we're responsible for leading the way from one stage of our species' evolution to the next. And Eckhart Tolle talks about this too, but he talks about it in more stark terms in his book, uh, A New Earth. Mm-hmm. They both say that evolution happens as a result of some sort of crisis that propels or forces us to make a leap forward. And Toll uses the example of an amphibian whose habitat is slowly drying up, who's forced to develop the ability to live on land or to die. And our own habitat is slowly drying up, and we're faced now with the same need. We have the technological and scientific sophistication to extinguish, extinguish the human race, and we need to make that leap now, not onto land, but into the subtle world. Mm. Beautifully said. That's that's a mouthful. That's a <laughs> that's an earful. But I agree. I agree. You know, you said something just a moment ago that reminded me of a little reference you made to this whole idea of transhumanism in your book. Uh, it was just mm-hmm. a short little comment um, where you sort of talked about how you know. From a technological standpoint, we're making an evolutionary leap, and the idea among transhumanists is to perhaps literally turn human beings into biological creatures through technology. And I believe what you were saying in the book is that that is not necessary. We have that inner technology to make a true evolutionary leap, and thus transhumanism is not the way to go in the way they're looking at it, right? 
I agree with that, yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was very interesting. Uh, I read several articles about this. Mm -hmm. And there's one kind of scary quote out that says that, yes, there could be ethical issues, but it's, you know, the thought of human beings turning into gods really is worth the risk. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to go there. We We don't need to import hardware into our brains because the hardware already exists. Agreed. And these abilities are, are open through the evolutionary process. It's the downpouring of the soul light to the brain that starts to awaken new brain cells. So we have everything we already need to be gods. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, ye will be gods. And he was talking right. exactly about that. That's right. Well, you know, this could take us in a different direction, but I think it's worth spending a moment or two on staying on this idea of transhumanism. You know, you have to imagine those who are sort of the architects, at least in theory, about this idea of transhumanism. They're brilliant, not necessarily the most humane, some of them, but they are brilliant in their their ideas, even though it may not be for the most benevolent reasons. Do you think, Colleen, that some of these, quote, architects of this movement are aware of what you're talking about, that that man are gods uh, in terms of God's little g, I guess you could say, uh, with the inner, I call it inner technology or even uh, in, inner wireless fidelity to evolved to that level and maybe they're trying to usurp that because what we're talking about if transhumanism in in the strictest sense is about uh inputting hardware if you will technology infusing it into the human to make them gods in their eyes um that's not natural obviously and that that's tinkering with the inner ability to evolve into gods do you think there may be some uh Maybe they're they're aware of that, and they want to stop that natural process. I think it's more likely that they're not aware of it. Really? They're not aware of it. Mm. That they, you know, maybe they sense the possibility, and the only way that they can um, get there is through uh, physical means, you know, actually creating the hardware that actually gets implanted into our brains. So it's sort of the outside working in rather than the inside working mm. out. Okay. Well, there have obviously been, there's a lot of information now coming out. I think there's different words that have been used uh, for the term transhumanism or the transhuman, um, but that the ideology or the ideas is the same. And it is, it's a bit scary, actually. Mm -hmm. I think so, too. Yeah. Hence the reason for books like yours that really can nudge the individual uh, away from that idea and into their developing their own inner technology. So. Well, you know, there's, there are a lot of elements here that are covered. You really cover uh, end-to-end all of the different um, ways that this uh, sort of uh, these subtle worlds can be accessed. And one of them are numbers. I want to talk about numbers. I've always had a fascination with numbers, looking at them more as a language than as digits per se. And, you know, toward the beginning of your book, you discuss the number seven and how that number mm-hmm. ties in with so many spiritual and even earthly principles. Seven is mm-hmm. a very important number. It seems to be omnipresent in so many symbolic and metaphorical and, again, even literal representations. Why is that? How is that number so important? Well, that's a good point, because everybody who reads this Ageless Wisdom stuff finds that everything is seven, and they're all scratching their heads trying to figure out why. And I finally found an answer in uh, Helen Blavatsky's mm. The Secret Doctrine, mm-hmm. and Pythagoras talks about this, too. He taught spiritual principles through the study of numbers, and he says number is the, the number seven is the number of our evolution because we're controlled by what he said, the seven spirits before the throne in the Bible. And what she says is that seven is the, um, the number of our solar system, that um, it represents the combination of four and three, that the 
square has long been the symbol of the um, physical world. It signifies the four directions and the four races of man. And the triangle has long been the symbol of the spiritual world, the trinity. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. And four into three creates seven. It's that spirit into matter creates life. And that, that's where we get the number seven. So everything is seven. There's seven chakras. There's seven, um, seven colors in the rainbow, seven um, organs in the body, seven visible planets, and so on, in the mm-hmm. physical and in the spiritual worlds. You talk about the, the four and the three. I think it was Blavatsky mm-hmm. that talked about that, the four representing the square, the uh, three re- representing the triad or triangle. But isn't I'm, I'm picturing the two symbols, the geometry mm-hmm. of those two mm-hmm. put together. Doesn't that as right. well equal a symbol when you put the square and superimpose the triangle or the other way around? What does that give you? Yeah, it's a star. Yeah? It's a seven-pointed star, which um, signifies the... Um, the blending of heaven and earth. Mm, that's deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it was fascinating to, to read all this yeah. and to figure out how everything's seven, and you know, in all the spiritual teachings, everything's seven, and in the in the mundane world, everything is seven too. We have seven days of the week, and so on. Mm-hmm. And you know, when we think of the seven chakras, of course, there's been a lot of back and forth in terms of uh, how many chakras there are. Actually, now, of course, the seven major chakras going from the crown mm-hmm. all the way to the to the root are what they're, I, I think, focusing on. But it's also been said that there are more chakras, perhaps as many as 12, that are perhaps in the ethereal uh, body uh, and beyond. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, OK, very, very that's very interesting. I want to stay on the numbers theme for a bit. I love, Colleen, asking my guests to give me their thoughts on the significance of guess what? 1111. <laughs> I know you'd reference this in your book, uh, 1111. Relative mm-hmm. to one of my fellow alternative radio show hosts, Simran Singh, love her show, yeah. and her show's yeah. aptly titled 1111 Talk Radio, as well as her magazine mm-hmm. she has called 1111. Mm-hmm. Now, in her mm-hmm. case, I know her story a little bit, that uh, the 1111 prompt started uh, coming into her life on the heels of a I would call it a dark night of, a, of her soul, wall-to-wall crisis for her. But then it opened; it seemed to open up a gate of opportunity. A um, lot of symbology and a lot of um, synchronicity around, life-changing synchronicity around that number. Not just 11-11, but for me, it's been since 2005. I've been seeing it 11 after the hour. What are your thoughts on the significance of this number? Well, according to Sim, it's the number of the soul. And I don't know if you, you saw that in the book, but I actually interviewed her about this, and she talked a lot about you know how this happened, and she kept seeing 1111 everywhere and thought she was going crazy. Mm-hmm. And then she had the experience that we talk about as spiritual telepathy, where the information just flooded into her brain. She saw magazine covers, she saw a radio banner, she saw a TV banner, and so on, and she heard the words, do this now, you'll heal, and other people will heal. This is about, um, this number relates to the soul. And that's sort of the start of her, her wonderful work that she's done. Absolutely. So it's a, it's a symbol of the soul. A symbol of the soul. 
I think there are a lot. There can be a lot of interpretations. There's no doubt that the fact that that number, this number, is so ubiquitous in society right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, my audience pretty much knows the story of how it started for me. I've talked about it a lot, so I won't get into it. But it is uh, definitely, I think, ramping up in terms of the numbers of people that are seeing it. But it's interesting that you know, for for everyone that's seeing it, they seem to be coming up with their own significance of what the number means. There's some people that immediately associate it with nine eleven ergo disaster and and challenge and you know something horrible or others will make a wish upon it and and uh others will do other things with it but you know i certainly can't come to a definitive conclusion as to what it means i think it's a, a rather i think it's a poignant number and when one starts to see it on a regular basis uh it, it it's trying to convey a message certainly uh perhaps it is the the language of the soul that's speaking. So Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that's, uh, yeah, very interesting. Well, you know, now I'd like to move from the significance of numbers. We're going to go back. We touched on chakras, but I want to talk about that a little bit more. You know, again, there, there is much talk about what they signify, how they work and how to work with them. But in your book, Colleen, you shed interesting light on how they correspond with different aspects of the evolutionary process. You describe them Mm -hmm. as quote, doorways into new and more subtle worlds and a higher level of telepathic perception. Can you explain mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, what I discovered when I was researching the three types of telepathy is that um, each of the three types utilizes a different chakra or ener- energy center, and that's why I put that section in the book where I could talk about what the esoteric meaning was of each, at each center. And there's three types of telepathy, instinctual, mental, and spiritual. Mm-hmm. And each of these utilizes a different chakra. Um, the first type of telepathy is instinctual, and that operates as our gut feelings, and it utilizes the solar plexus chakra, and that's connected to our emotional bodies. It's kind of the psychic center. And because it's related to the emotional body, it creates a psychic connection to the people that we're closest to. We know right away if somebody has died or if somebody's in distress or hurt or something. Rupert Sheldrake mm-hmm. uh, has done a lot of research on this type of telepathy. In his book, The Sense of Being Stared At. Did you read that? That's a really good book. I'm familiar with it and love his work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good book. So that's um, instinctive telepathy. And do you mind if I talk a little bit about how many cultures I found? I don't mind at all, and I don't think our audience will either. Go for it. (laughs) Well, I thought this was really interesting. And one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to show that this is the core teaching that exists at the heart of all religions. Because it's so esoteric, we can't really prove it in the scientific way. And I wanted the book to reach and reach a wider audience and be credible to a wider audience than people that re- usually just read the esoteric books, because that's a pretty select audience. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a lot of time looking at how this teaching appears in other cultures and other traditions. And it was fascinating to me. For example, the um, teaching on instinctive telepathy and how it relates to the solar plexus is everywhere. The kahunas, who are the native priests of Hawaii, Mm -hmm. believe that telepathic messages are sent directly from one solar plexus to another. And the African bushmen uh, believe that all living creatures are connected by a a silver stream of energy that extends from one belly button to the other. And they use these horizontal lines like telephone wires to receive and make telepathic messages. And the, uh, the uh, aboriginals believe it's their miwi that makes it possible, possible for them to see or hear at a distance. And miwi translates as soul or instinct, and it's, again, located at the pit of the stomach. 
And the Japanese use haraji or belly talk to size up a person or a business proposal. And the word haraji derives from hara, which is uh, translated as belly or guts, and ji, which translates as the art of. So they call it the art of the belly. Take a drink of water. Hang on. Mm -hmm. While she's taking a sip of water, I just want to comment. I do find that interesting. And as I was reading Colleen's book, I uh, in this particular section, uh, something occurred to me, Colleen, I don't know if you're back with us, uh, yep. but uh, I was just saying to the audience, I do find, uh, the, again, how ubiquitous this idea that there's something very special, just needless to say, uh, that connects us at that part of our body, the belly button. And it makes mm -hmm. me think of, I wanted to see if I can recall this. And I was trying to remember yesterday, I was as I was reading your book, where I heard this. But let's look at the umbilical cord connecting the mother with the child. And when yeah. that child is born, in modern times, at least, it is customary to immediately cut that umbilical cord. And yet I had heard it some somewhere, and probably stemming from indigenous uh, teachings that really the umbilical cord should be stayed attached longer than it is because there's still some sort of a instinctual or intuitive bonding that has not necessarily been completed between the newborn child and the mother. Have you heard that before? I haven't, but I find that fascinating. Don't that you find sense. that fascinating? I do. Sure and I, I think there's some correlation there with uh, what the, the wisdom teachings have told us about the importance of communication between, uh, you know, that's the physical represent, representation of instinct at that level. So I wanted to make sure to bring that up. You know, you also talk, uh, mention to two people that I love, I dearly love their work, is Dean Radin and Marilyn Schlitz from, from IONS, the Institute of Noetic mm -hmm. Sciences, and their research into the role uh, that instinct or gut plays in helping us know information beyond uh, what the five physical senses gives us. And I love what they said after conducting some rigid experiments there at IONS. They concluded that the gut could be called a belly brain with a perceptual right. intelligence of its own, a belly brain. So let's mm -hmm. let's stay on that for a little bit. I've heard that mm -hmm. as well that the that that area may too have a brain just as the heart uh, has an intelligence in it, and I'd like to talk about that as well. Right. Well, you can see how widespread this is. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's gut feelings for us. It's Haraji in Japan. It's Miwi for the Aboriginals. It's um, belly button lines for the uh, Bushmen, and it's um, what they call a key threads the uh, in the uh, Kahuna tradition that it's always a line from one person to another. And so that's what they're showing, is that there's some kind of communication. And it's always the the, um, the more intense emotions that seem to mm -hmm. get through. Yes. And um, Sheldrake talks about this. He mm -hmm. said the most vivid examples are always through death, accidents, or so on. And that's what uh, they found in that that experiment, that the neutral um, emotion, things that the, the images that brought up neutral emotions really didn't, connect as much as the really vivid, strong emotions. Yeah, I agree in terms of intense emotion. That's something that I have looked at and have researched a great deal in, in, in years past. I even think of, you know, times gone by that I had attended church as a child. And, and you know, when you go to some of the very devout Baptist or Pentecostal churches and you see people that are getting all worked up, we call it uh, sometimes speaking in tongues and getting emotionally, it's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. It's not about fret or fear necessarily. It's just intense emotion. And for some reason, it seems like the more intense the emotion, the more intensified the energy becomes, and that becomes a conduit to 
move things, if you will, when other things, mm-hmm. that's somehow there's some contact that's being made to that, those subtle realms. So I think that's mm-hmm. uh, absolutely worth pondering for sure. Mm-hmm. So you were going into the different areas of telepathy. So we talked about instinctual telepathy mm-hmm. and there are two others. Yeah. Now we're on mental telepathy mm-hmm. and true mental telepathy utilizes the throat center. So we've moved up from the solar plexus to the throat now. And um, there seems to be a difference in what the scientific world is calling telepathy and what the wisdom teachings are calling telepathy, mental telepathy, that um, in the scientific experiments, they talk a lot about how it's hard to tease out what's clairvoyance and what's telepathy. And my understanding after studying this material is that it's mostly clairvoyance. It's mostly coming from that third chakra area, that true mental telepathy is something else. It's contact that's made between two fully conscious, focused minds. And good examples of this, and I have this in the book, are Helena Blavatsky, who wrote The Secret Doctrine, mm-hmm. Helena Rorich, who was um, the author of many texts called Agni Yoga, and especially Alice Bailey, who wrote that long series of books. Mm-hmm. And these three women were the women who introduced the modern interpretations of the wisdom teachings to our generation of spiritual seekers. It was Bailey who coined the term New Age, And each of these women were said to essentially be taking dictation from Tibetan masters from one brain to another, one mind to another. And Bailey talks about this, and I thought her story was very interesting. She said that uh, Tibetan men uh, visited her in the flesh when she was about 15 and told her that he would have work for her to do sometime in the future. And then 24 years later, when she was a mother of three, she suddenly heard a voice in her head asking for cooperation in the writing of a series of books. And after some reluctance, she finally agreed. And according to her story, at the beginning, she simply listened and wrote down the dictated words as they were dropped into her brain one by one. And over time, as their minds became more attuned, she was able to directly register the thoughts and ideas of the Tibetans and write, and write down those ideas. So that's true mental telepathy. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty rare, but she says that that will be the preferred mode of communication for all of us in about 300 years or so. Versus instinctual telepathy. or mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Each time that we develop a higher level of perception, we're taking a step up the evolutionary level, letter, ladder, excuse me, that our perceptual abilities move from instinct to rational knowing to intuitive knowing. And in this teaching... You can see that how that works in the chakra teaching and in the teachings of the three levels of telepathy. Mm-hmm. That spiritual telepathy is the highest type of telepathy. Yes, let's talk about and, that. Yeah, that is a, an intuitive process. And that becomes only possible when we've created a link between the mind, brain, and soul. Sometimes it happens um, automatically or sporadically, like it happened with me. But we can actually train ourselves to be in direct contact with the soul. And... Um, When we do this, we have the ability to serve as intermediaries between the physical and spiritual worlds. It's said that the masters who guide the evolution of our planet cannot directly affect life on Earth. They look for those of us who have that direct line of communication between the soul and the brain, and information then can be stepped down from the higher planes through the soul to our brains where we have conscious awareness of them. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how we move from rational knowing to pure intuitive knowing. And each time we make that step, we don't lose the, the sense of knowing or the type of knowing that we had before. It just goes, it steps down below our field of conscious awareness. I understand. Like, for example, when, when we develop to the point where most of what we know comes through the rational mind, we start to um, lose that sense of um, 
uh, gut knowing. And part of the intuition work was really to reintroduce people to that and to um, validate that, that that wisdom, that old wisdom that we do have, that even if somebody or something looks good on paper, if your gut is queasy, then you know there's a problem. Mm -hmm. And to honor that and listen to that. You're making a very important distinction. And as I'm listening, I'm, I'm concurring with everything that you're saying, you know, so many in especially Western culture will use the term gut feeling and intuition interchangeably as if they're the same thing. But what I think Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you say is that they may be aspects of something that is not rational per se, but not necessarily uh, the same thing. Exactly. Uh, In other words, the mental telepathy and then onto spiritual telepathy would be stepping up that process am i on the right track i may be confusing myself but in other words instinct and intuition are not necessarily one and the same is what you're saying well i think there are different types of intuition there are different types of knowing and so that's an um, our gut feelings are a non-rational way of knowing so you could call that intuition Mm -hmm. and those two words are used interchangeably um this is a higher type of intuition a spiritual intuition or spiritual i like i like the word telepathy because uh, sometimes it is called spiritual intuition, but I like telepathy because it really describes the actual process. The language is telepathy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that um, intuition and gut feelings are used interchangeably, and I think that makes sense, mm-hmm. that it is a kind of um, intuitive knowing, but that there's a higher level of intuitive sure. knowing. Sure. Very well said. Well, again, here here we go with words again. It's so funny how as humans assign so much meaning to a word um, and sometimes it gets lost in translation. But let's take the word telepathy. I think that's another word that's been bandied about. Uh, you know, I think fundamentally people think when they think of telepathy, they think of mind-to-mind communication. Mm-hmm. But in this mm-hmm. context, it sounds like you're talking about, Colleen, telepathy being mind to fill in the blank, mind-to-soul communication, mind-to-the-subtle-realms communication. So telepathy mm-hmm. takes on a much broader uh, implication in this regard. So... Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. that's another thing. Um, oh boy, there's so many <laughs> so many different directions we can go in this. It's such an exciting uh, topic. Um, telepathy is one of those things. If if we were to look at telepathy as being able to purposely hook into somebody else uh, somebody else's stream of consciousness, if you will, and make contact mm-hmm. with them. Let's say there's an individual that. Um, Let's let's take a little hypothetical. Let's say that there's a woman that has a crush on a on a guy, and she's um, she's afraid to pick up the phone and call him for fear of seeming uh, forward, but wants to utilize something like the, the fundamental definition of telepathy of not hacking into the brain, but sort of somehow getting on that frequency that would urge him to call her. You know, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling because it's a very sort of, you know, light uh, approach to it. But is there something to that? I think people would like to know, can we, is there a way of getting on uh, a chosen individual's frequency to be able to uh, hook into the mind and, and nudge them to maybe do something? Or, you know, and I know there's a lot of um, feelings about uh, ethically uh, how that should be handled, if it can be done. But do you think something like that can happen? Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's just a, it's a communication system. Mm-hmm. In the same way we talk verbally, at some point we'll talk mentally. Mm-hmm. We and I think that's happening. Verbally. 
Yeah, I think that's happening mm-hmm. now to a certain extent. You know, I'm talking mm-hmm. to a lot of individuals. I, by the way, also counsel uh, clients on developing their intuitive abilities. Um, and I, you know, I'm finding that conversations I'm having with people, I think I've mentioned this on a previous show, uh, are having instances of thinking of somebody, very fundamental thing, thinking of the person, haven't talked to them in a while, and lo and behold, they'll either run into them on the street or get a call from them or these days a text seems to be, uh, for whatever reason, there's certain time periods that this ability seems to be more intense or it's more uh, fluid versus other times. And I'm definitely seeing a trend with that. And these are lay people mm-hmm. that I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. That's yeah. Interesting. yeah. That's interesting. So what I, excites me about spiritual telepathy, excuse me, excites me about spiritual telepathy is the... Um, the way we can be used for service on Earth, we can be given information that leads to some sort of service. And I think that um, when we're open to this, we also just get information that can be sort of stepped down and then spread to the world. And I think that the big uh, rush to do all these intuition books is one example of that. Mm. And I think the next wave now is this, this higher mind stuff that's coming in. And I think that many people get sort of seated with the same idea and the same impulse, and then we start this this new wave. Mm-hmm. So think... there's there's that, and then there's direct where we can get direct information, like I did with a magazine, um, or there's other examples. One example that Bailey uses in the book is um, Woodrow Wilson's uh, aide named Colonel House. He was he was. Um, given information that led to the uh, formation of the United Nations, that that was really, that information was stepped down and um, sort of deposited in his brain. And he started the League of Nations, which was the forerunner to the United Nations. Mm-hmm. But that information was given to him because the masters thought that, you know, this is time for this to happen. So that happens. We're given information uh, about some service that we can perform. And when we touch the soul... We, we start to understand what our higher purpose is, and we see the bigger picture, and we get sort of our piece of the puzzle, our, our piece of the service that we're here to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great example and a, and a key point that says if one is to seek evolution of the self as well as of the whole, the key, the conduit is service. That's what we're talking about here. And so using intuition for service to self at the exclusion of everything else is not going to work ultimately that service mm-hmm. is what is really that key to unlock that, that, I, that, that door. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. something, that's something uh, powerful to really contemplate. Well, you know, mm-hmm. I, at this time, I, I want to point out how Colleen has included so many wonderful meditations in her book, simple and yet very, very effective. And, you know, uh, Colleen, one of my favorites is the meditation on loving kindness and opening the mm-hmm. heart. Speaking of service, because I think it does involve that, the opening of the heart, uh, something many of us could use. We've all heard mm-hmm. that words, and I want to I kind of bring this full circle. We've all heard that words are a powerful trigger for emotional states, as well as uh, their ability to express current emotional states. Now, we know the work of the late uh, Masuro Emoto, who stunningly demonstrated how words and the emotions that accompany them can affect the structure of water. Uh, And so the inference is that if words and thoughts and emotions can affect the structure of water, then it can certainly affect us being that we're made primarily of water. So how does this all tie together? The meditations that you include, which are clear in affirmation and the important use of words, thoughts, and emotions, how does this literally affect us and our loved ones and even our enemies? 
Well, getting back to the chakra system and why, you know, that's um, a doorway to our evolution, um, what this teaching tells us is that we're, most people have developed the first three chakras, and we're now right at the doorway to the heart chakra. That's sort of the new frontier for us. And once we get there, everything changes. That's when we start to open to the subtle worlds, and that's really sort of the necessary work for any evolutionary pioneers. To do the higher work with higher telepathy, we have to have an open heart. And so the meditations in that, that chapter on uh, loving kindness mm-hmm. and, um, what was the other one? Loving kindness and, um, oh, I can see. Oh, it. altruistic joy. Altruistic, altruistic joy. I joy. love that one as well. Yeah. Yes. I know. That's good. That's uh, being happy for the good fortune of others. Those start to open your heart. And the whole point is we move uh, energy up from the solar plexus to the heart. And then we start having a different outlook on life. We start seeing life, um, in a more universal way. Barbara Marks Hubbard calls it the universal human, which I absolutely love. So we go from the personal to the universal. And there's another aspect of this too, and that's um, quieting down the lower bodies so we can get direct information from the soul, that the information has to um, reach our brains. It has to go from the soul to the mind to the brain. And if it doesn't hit the brain, we don't, we don't have conscious awareness of it. We might have these little subtle... Uh, vague kind of um, premonitions, but we don't have the information in a form that we can really use it and in, in, in thought in thought form that we can really use it. So the first part of esoteric training is to whip the lower bodies into shape. It's called the path of promotion, excuse me, the path of probation. Mm-hmm. And that's when we quiet down our emotional bodies and our mental bodies, the thought process, and um, purify the physical body. And once we do that, then we have a, a straight, a clear channel from the soul to the brain. Mm. I noticed that and you, that's when we can get the information. Right, right. And I know that in the book you talk about diet and how integral diet is to be able to quiet down those lower, that you know, mm-hmm. areas, lower areas, if you will, uh, to be able to focus more on the higher aspects and, and make that connection. I've noticed that you use, Colleen, uh, the term brain and mind as separate, as mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that's another one of those things where depending on who you're talking to, uh, mind and brain may be one and the same and to others uh, different. Um, where, where are, well, I, I think you've kind of explained, but can you elaborate on that a little bit? What, how, how, sure, sure. I think yeah. that's a very interesting, it's a very interesting question mm. that um, most mainstream scientists say that there's mind and brain are one and the same. And more scientists now are saying, no, they're not, that the mind is non-local and the mm. brain is local. Right. The brain is individual, the mind is not. And um, our minds are part of the universal mind. And our brains are inside of our heads. And um, a lot of the, the early quantum scientists talked about this too, and they were kind of blown away when they had these discoveries. They talked about there's, that there's an energetic web that's mind-like and an information field. And it was one of the early pioneers who talked about the one mind and the one consciousness and so on. And when I was um, researching this topic, I saw a lot of great books in the library that had very promising titles like The Mystical Mind. And I would run home and get ready to read them. And as I did, I became very disappointed because they were talking about the brain. Mm -hmm. They were talking about how higher states of consciousness are really located in the brain. There's something in the brain, some switch in the brain, but it's not the brain. The brain is just the receiver. It's the mind that pulls the information into the brain. Mm, wonderfully said. That's that's very lucid. Okay. 
And I, I but think the mind yeah. is intangible. So the only thing that can really be studied is the brain, mm-hmm. not the mind. The mind is intangible. It's subtle. So we have, you know, a subtle thing that we can't measure yet. We don't have the tools to measure it. Right. And then we have a physical thing that's really right at our fingertips. So that's what gets studied. Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of leads into something else that I'd like to talk about, and that's Einstein's um, information. Sure. I talk a lot about how this, this uh, process of contacting the soul really is um, what we call genius. And I discovered that after reading some of the original sources that went into one of my favorite books, which was called Higher Creativity. Mm-hmm. And that was written by Willis Harmon, who was the um, president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he uh, looked at biographies of famous artists, writers, scientists, inventors, and so on, and discovered that uh, many of these greatest achievements came from an intuitive breakthrough. And Einstein was one. And he had um, information given to him, and he talked a lot about that, about how it's a higher process, and the mind uh, suddenly leaps you know, beyond the rational mind to a higher plane. But after he died... Uh, researchers took his brain and they dissected it and they probed it and they tried to figure out why he was so brilliant, that um, they figured it was something to do with the brain. And um, they did have some theories, but it's not the brain. The brain was just the receiver, and I'm sure he thought that was hilarious, you know, when he was looking down and seeing Mm -hmm. that happen. Mm -hmm. But um, they were studying the only thing that really could be studied. Mm-hmm. So it certainly was not the source of his genius, and he made that clear in many things that he said. When they dissected the brain, and this is, I think, pretty well known that I think his brain is still in existence somewhere in a jar, locked up. Mm-hmm. But did they were they satisfied on any level that they found any justification for his brilliance, given that they probably wouldn't even be able to understand where it truly came from? Did they think they found where that brilliance was emanating from within the brain? They came, they came up with some theories. They came mm. up with some theories. Yeah. But all you have to do is read a biography of him and, and read the many um, oh, things sure. that he said about his, his um, discoveries, and you can see that it, that it came from a higher Absolutely. Place. Oh, absolutely. I think most of us in the, in the new consciousness field that have studied sort of the uh, summit areas in quantum science know that that clearly, that he was really a mystic, just as, mm-hmm. uh, exactly. just as um, oh gosh, Mm, the father of classical physics is, I can't believe Newton, it, Newton, <laughs> Newton. Sir Isaac yeah. Newton. Oh, my God. Yeah. I just had a oh a brain, brain freeze. freeze yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Uh, but, but again, you know, he himself studied the paranormal. He was mm-hmm. a mystic. And yet right. it was really, uh, you know, I, I think there was a little bit of a conspiracy there. I don't know what happened. They, they did not want that to get out. But indeed, some of his uh, biggest scientific breakthroughs, if you will, were derived from mystical experiences that he had. So, yeah, mm-hmm. as quiet as it had been kept, uh, many of our um, classical thought leaders were in that realm as well. Sure. There's a great uh, biography of Newton I read called The Last Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. That's a, um, about a book I'd highly recommend to anybody interested in that topic. One of the main things that I want to say to the audience about this book and about this subject is that these higher states are not for special people. They're for all of us. Mm-hmm. And it's really time. The tide of evolution has brought us to the point where we can do this now. And it's so necessary right now that we, we make this leap and that we have this expanded consciousness and that we, we work to create a different reality because we're looking at some very um, scary futures if we don't. 
Here, here. I, I absolutely agree. And I think we've got company calling. I think people, you know, even though there are myriad ways of arriving at the same conclusion, people are arriving at that conclusion. I mean, again, we're using these words, unprecedented challenges, tumultuous times, crisis, all these words. Um, and however one is experiencing them, I think they are being forced to look at if you will, alternatives. I think we are going to be pushed to the point where we will look at ourselves in the mirror for who we really are and what we can really access. I think that's great. Well, you know, because there's so many, particularly in our audience, that are so fervent about uh, researching these things and wanting to better themselves out of, and you've got quite a few meditations in your book, but if there was mm -hmm. one, I'm going to put you on the spot, if there was one that you would recommend to get somebody on their way, on their path to spiritual telepathy, what would you recommend? Maybe even a couple that you would recommend. Well, I would, um, I would start with the meditation in chapter six. That's the basic uh, mind training mm -hmm. uh, meditation, and that's really the first step. In chapter six, I talk about the stages of this type of meditation, and mind training in all cultures is the, the first step. The mind has to be whipped into shape. It has to be quieted down because that's really the key to us getting the information to the brain. So it would be first that information, excuse me, first the basic meditation in chapter six, and then the two soul alignment meditations in chapter seven. Okay. Well, great. And of course, we're going to have a link to where this book can be purchased so you can check it out mm -hmm. yourself. And I think you have a new website, right? That has a I do, sample. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a link to that. But tell us about that. We still have a few minutes left, but we might as well go into that sure. so people can look. Uh, it's spiritualtelepathy.net. And what people will find is the introduction there. So the, the full introduction to the book is there. Great. Uh, my um, endorsements and, and so on. Of which you have but wonderful. Yeah, they can get a good sense of what the book's about if they look at the website. Okay, great. Well, again, we'll make sure to have a link to that. You know, I want to, we're kind of teeter-tottering back and forth, but these are all connected uh, elements, I think. You said something about the soul that I wanted to have you elaborate on. You know, I think you said in, um, at some point, you know, the goal is to contact the soul. I think I'm paraphrasing a little bit, or to connect with the soul, to contact the soul. And then the thought just kind of, intuitively came to me is it that the that we contact the soul or do we open ourselves up so that the soul can reconnect or contact us oh that's a perfect question perfect and this is what i discovered is that um it, the building the bridge from the human personality to the soul is a united effort when we extend our attention upward the soul extends its attention downward mm -hmm. and so it helps we sort of move upwards and it sort of moves us upward so it's a united effort okay and you and what one I'm thing sorry. i want to say is that i always thought when i studied this stuff that you know this is something that would happen after i've been doing this for you know 20 years or my whole lifetime or whatever but one thing i was surprised about is how early on i i experienced um more connection to the soul it happened pretty early and i and once we start to do this we we get the soul's attention basically and it starts to work with us and I, you know, I started to feel more like I had a divine partner in my life, and it really started to expand my thinking, and it was wonderful, wonderful. Once you get a little taste of that, you want more. Absolutely. And the discipline of meditation doesn't seem so arduous because you know that that's really the means to developing this bridge to have this um, more consistent flow. Sure. Agreed. And I'm, I'm thinking of a term that I use often, again, often used interchangeably, is the universe. Call it God, I say, call it universe, maybe we could call it the soul. 
um, in my case, I use tend to use the word universe, and I say that it it's one of those things where if we are open to connecting with it, it will meet us more than halfway. And once mm-hmm. it meets us more than halfway, we begin to speak each. Well, I, I, it understands our language, but it, it its desire is to have us understand its language as well because it speaks on different terms than we're normally used to uh, having. So mm-hmm. wow, the language mm. is telepathy. That's a really mm. good thing for people to remember. That's the language. It's not English, French, or German. That's it's right. When yeah. we communicate with these higher levels, and it's a two-way communication. Right. First, it's just them communicating to us. But once we develop that bridge and have a more consistent flow, then it's a two-way conversation. Do you think we'll see in our lifetimes, Colleen, a time when telepathy, that form of communication, will be used on a regular basis? I do. I do. In our lifetime. I think that- yeah, I think there's a, a, a there will be a critical mass of people there has to be that have this more expanded um, level of consciousness that, I mean, it's necessary to really stave off a pretty grim future. Mm-hmm. We're being pushed. I mean, like, like amphibians, we're being pushed because our habitat is in trouble. We're being pushed to make a leap like the amphibians had to do. They had to learn to live on land. We have to learn to communicate with the higher worlds. So we become part of that world. The amphibian becomes part of the physical world. We're going to become part of the subtle world. Mm-hmm. Well, Dolores Cannon, the late Dolores Cannon now uh, talked of uh, literally two different worlds, a splitting off of worlds, maybe not in the physical sense. Well, I don't know. I think she even said it in the, in the physical sense. But I kind of envisioned uh, sort of a separate sort of maybe more of an ethereal world that coexists with this world and those that are prepared to navigate that will will occupy that let's call it frequency rather than space Mm -hmm. and those Mm -hmm. that are hell-bent on using the arcane and archaic ways of living will remain on the physical 3d very dense uh level so it seems like all of these things are in play right now, and especially for those of us who, for whatever reason, are more in tuned with these, with these areas of consciousness, we're seeing it. And for those mm-hmm. that aren't, they're not. Mm-hmm. Evolution a... is speeding up. And like Toll and um, Barbara Marks Hubbard say, there has to be some sort of crisis to propel us forward. It and we're so. in that crisis now. It certainly seems so. Yeah. Well... Well, we're running out of time, but before we close, I want to spend a few minutes talking about something that is near and dear to me, as well as many of our listeners, and that's animals, animal communication, and as you say, animal telepathy. I was mm-hmm. so excited when I saw that section in your book. And as uh, some of my audience members know, I've, I've written uh, extensively about animal reincarnation. Um, mm-hmm. And so the subject is intriguing to me. And every time I'm interviewed, I've got to tell the story about what I think was my own animal reincarnation story. But let's talk about animal telepathy um, and, and how it's mentioned in your book. What is animal telepathy? And moreover, how can people learn to communicate more readily with their animal companions in that way, you think? Well, uh, Rupert Sheldrake wrote that wonderful book. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? Uh, animals that know they're being taken to the vet or whatever. I animals that the know when animals that know when their owners are coming home. I know it well. Yeah, yeah it's a great yeah, book. Yeah. Well, what he talks about there, and I thought this is interesting because it really related to human to human telepathy, is that um, this kind of telepathic interchange is dependent on the close relationships. You know, just like the telepathy that we have with our um, 
husbands and wives and and uh, best friends and mm-hmm. sons and daughters we have with the animal companions that are closest to us and i think it's just being sensitive to their to their needs and being sensitive to what they're telling us i've seen it in my own cats too i mean we have that going on all the time mm-hmm. i think it's great that you're are you researching this area I am. I have been. I've actually given a couple of public talks on it. And yeah, it's a long story. But uh, like I said, some of the audience may know that we have my husband and I have a little kitty that we believe is his second time around. Uh, and there's some articles that I've written. It's been one of the most popular subjects that I have uh, covered. So yeah, I think there's, and I think there's a lot that we can learn, Colleen, from our animal companions. You know, you talk mm-hmm. about animal instinct, and I think you brought that up briefly in the book, and um, how, um, you know, although we don't know, I think within the context of Sheldrick's work in his book, uh, we don't really know what it is they're tapping into. Some people feel it's the magnetic field or the magnetosphere itself uh, yeah. that the animals will use to guide them in certain directions based on inclement weather, change of seasons or whatever. Um, but clearly there is some sort of uh, an intuitive capacity that they can't help but use. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. a novelty for them. I think it's a survival mechanism and how we can really mm-hmm. learn from our animal companions. So I thought that would be neat because I know that there are so many people out there that just, and this is another thing, it seems that the, their love for their animal companions are increasing exponentially. This is what I'm finding in mm-hmm. my research. And so mm-hmm. wouldn't it be great if we could, on a regular basis, communicate with our our animal companions and have a two-way telepathic conversation. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have a rational way of knowing, their instinctual telepathy is more more developed than ours. They rely on it more. And, you know, getting back to the um, reincarnation aspect, uh, my husband had this cat that he just adored, and they, they were really close, and this cat followed him around everywhere, and, mm-hmm. and she died a few years ago, and he still mourns her and said he wasn't ready to get another cat. He just loved this cat so much. And a stray cat had kittens in our garage, mm-hmm. and it was in the fall, and we ended up bringing them all in for the winter. And the mama cat just fell in love with him and has the exact same relationship <laughs> that uh, the other cat has with him, and she follows him everywhere. And I, I kept saying, I think this cat is a reincarnation of, well, of the cat you lost. So maybe it is. I think so. I'm, I'm not going to spill the beans quite yet, but I am working on a presentation that goes into... Uh, the evidence for animal reincarnation. So we go into kind of excruciating detail on some of the the characteristics uh, and uh, confirmation that we might uh, get from these sorts of things. I never thought I'd get into this area of study, but uh, the universe had plans for me, I guess, for that. (laughs) So That sounds fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Well, you know, this has been a pleasure, and I think we both agree that we are living during absolute here's that word, unprecedented times, critical Mm -hmm. and challenging. And the opportunities for spiritual development and evolution are growing like never before. How's that for a paradox? Uh, In closing on that note, what message would you leave our audience with in this regard? What I said before, and I want to make sure that that this was clear, that Hmm. these states are not just for the special people. They're not for our saints. They're not for random people that are get, that get chosen. It's something that each of us can cultivate. Mm-hmm. And it takes a meditation discipline. And it's possible now for us to make that leap. And those of us that do are the pioneers <clears throat> who will really work to change the world. 
Right. Well, you so essential. You are certainly an integral part of that changing the world. And I salute you. And again, you know, I'm a fan, Colleen, from way back, Intuition Magazine, everybody. So and now you're with your beautiful book that so many can use to help them in their evolution, spiritual telepathy, ancient techniques to access the wisdom of your soul. Colleen Morrow, I thank you so much. What a pleasure it's been to have you. Thank you for having me. We all have access to the divine radio, as George Washington Carver used to call it, that frequency that's accessible to anyone who makes the conscious choice to connect into it. Colleen has put together an incredible case for this reality and how we can attain this higher state using techniques to literally tap into the field of the soul. I commend Colleen for her years of diligent work into this exciting and evolving subject and for her unrelenting passion to share her own wisdom with all of us. And I thank you for tapping in to this episode of Conscious Inquiry. Until next time, I'm your host, Alexis Brooks.